God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to take you to the cross this evening for us to consider it together. Jesus was taken from the Garden of Gethsemane in the night. He spent the night under heavy trial by the high priest, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. As soon as it was morning time, they took him to Pilate, where he underwent civil trials by Pilate. Pilate didn't want to make a judgment, so he sent him to Herod. Herod didn't want to make a judgment, he just wanted to see him, so he sent him back to Pilate. And finally, Pilate caved in to the demand of the Jews, scourged him, and delivered him to be crucified. He was crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning by our time. He was offered wine with a bitter addition to dull his pain, but he refused that drink because he intended to drink the dregs of the wrath of God, all of them. Pilate placed a sign on the top of the cross that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It was written in three languages. It was close by the city of Jerusalem. Many saw it. The Jewish leadership begged him to take that down and to rewrite it. He said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. We see a little tiny bit of character from a characterless man. This is not a detailed study of the crucifixion. I want you to see the things that Jesus said from the cross and see if from them we can't get a picture of the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we looked at the birth of Jesus Christ. We didn't get to the birth, but we looked at Joseph, who was thought to be his father, and we looked at Mary, and we looked at the events leading up to her conception. But I want to tell you that there was a boy born. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was laid to manger for 33 and a half years. He lived in this world. Until he left that home, he was subject to his parents. The Bible tells us that. He was an obedient child. He entered upon his public ministry with the baptism of John the Baptist at 30 years of age, and for three and a half years he traveled in obscurity in Judea, performing miracles and preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And he was the Lord Jesus Christ. But he hadn't come to preach, and he hadn't come to perform miracles. As his chief purpose, he came to die. And so I want you to see him on the cross tonight, And I want to look at the things that he said while he was hanging on that cross. These are the seven sayings of Jesus Christ in the cross of Calvary. And I want you to see from what he said, the character of the man Christ Jesus, our Redeemer. In Luke chapter 23, we have him being nailed to the cross and having it erected in its hole with male factors, thieves on both sides of him, In verse 32, and they came in verse 33 to the place which is called Calvary. There they crucified him. And that is to nail your hands and feet to a cross of wood and to suspend it in the air where you can hang and suffer for a good while. It takes days for a healthy man to die from crucifixion. In the Philippine Islands, where there is so much superstition, Because of the Catholic religion, 
There are men that will entertain tourists by being nailed to wooden crosses. It's not fatal by itself, except after many days of laying there from a loss of blood. But that's what it means when it says they crucified him. And the male factors, one in the right hand and the other on the left. And the first words we have of our Savior while he's on the cross are these. Then said Jesus in verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. He had, he had some garments. They took them in pieces and divided them up among themselves. And he had a coat that was woven from top to bottom that could not be so divided. And so they cast lots for it. But they didn't cast lots because it was their thinking. They right. cast lots because they were to fulfill Scripture by Amen. casting lots. Right. I want you to know that the God of heaven was in complete charge yep. of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And that a detail was lost and every prophecy was fulfilled. And Jesus gave his life for us. But he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He had just been falsely condemned. He had just been scourged. He had just been blindfolded and had Roman soldiers smash him in the face, saying, if you're the Son of God, then tell us who just hit you in the face. He had been spit upon. He had had a crown of thorns put in his head and driven down into his scalp with a reed. He had been mocked in a purple and scarlet robe and made fun of as being the king of Israel. False witnesses had been brought against him. And then the civil authority had turned him over to be crucified when he was not guilty, and the civil authority knew he was not guilty. He'd been falsely condemned, scourged, and now he was crucified. And I want you to know the first words that came out of his mouth were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I want to show you the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He never taught anything that he didn't live. You ever want to see a preacher that lives what he preaches? Yep. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Look at holding your fingers there, but turning to Matthew chapter 5, I want you to see what Jesus Christ taught when he was here in this world. Never forget that Jesus Christ obeyed perfectly and kept all the righteousness of God, so that when he died, in the great transaction that we call justification, oh, my brethren, in the world, the simple little people who don't want to study their Bibles, but who read little tracts put out by other simple little people, they say that justification means just as if I'd never sinned. That is heresy. Amen. Justification is much more than that. Right. Justification is having all of our sins put on the Lord Jesus Christ and the full wrath of God coming to bear against those sins in His person so that He suffered the full and complete penalty that the justice of God demands for our sins. Right. And, and, that's only half of it, and His perfect righteousness, which He kept His entire life, with every temptation, is applied to us. It is not just as if we'd never sinned. It's just as if we were the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. And that is a huge difference. Amen. That's justification. And I want you to know how righteous he was. The character of the man who died for us. 
I'll tell you, if I could have called 12 legions of angels, they would be wiping up the leftovers about this time in Luke chapter 23. And I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. That's just my nature because my nature isn't that of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Look what he taught. This is the righteousness that you have applied to you. This is your standing before the holy God. It's incredible. It's How can I tell you about it? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43, Jesus said, Ye have heard that it hath been said. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Oh, brethren, I'm so pressed for time because I want to get to all seven of them, but think about this. Do you know who said these words? The most righteous man in the nation of Israel. Right, right. The most righteous men in the nation of Israel taught this. This isn't Moses' law. This is the Jewish leadership. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Now that's how the flesh thinks. Jesus Christ thought so much higher than that. Here's what he said. But I say unto you, Here is the righteousness of our Savior. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, What do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. That is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Is that better than having the righteousness of Caiaphas and the other leaders of the Jews applied to your account? I want the righteousness of a Savior and a sin substitute and a representative that died for me that loved his enemies always. So that though having spent the entire night being falsely accused and blasphemed, and smitten, and spit upon, and having a crown of thorns put upon him, having been scourged, and now crucified, his first words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When was the last time you prayed for a similar enemy like that? May the love of the Lord Jesus Christ fill our hearts and souls that we would do so. Back to Luke chapter 23. Did you see there when Jesus was teaching, he said that the Father sends his Son and his reign on the evil and the good? And so Jesus prayed for a very specific thing. I do not go into this passage trying to find unconverted elect. I go into this passage trying to find the righteousness of Jesus Christ and letting the words tell me exactly what Jesus meant. Let's look at what he said. Father, forgive them. Is that the entire world? Or is that some soldiers that had just taken hammers and pounded nails through his hands and his feet? It's a very specific prayer for only a few. It's very specific to one sin. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's not they, they don't know what they've done. It's they know not what they do. There's a very specific sin under consideration. 
And it's a sin that he's asking for forgiveness for, not based on his shed blood. He doesn't say, Father, forgive them, for I'm about to shed my everlasting blood for them. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He is asking for simply and only temporal mercy upon the soldiers that were pounding the nails through his hands and his feet in order for him to fulfill all righteousness by praying for them that despitefully used him. When God sends his rain and his sunshine on the evil and the good, it is not dependent upon the blood of Christ to do so. That is the character of God. Right. And so Jesus was praying for the character of God to recognize that these Roman soldiers were doing their job. They hadn't brought the false witnesses against Jesus Christ. They hadn't witnessed all of his miracles. Jesus himself will tell Pilate in John chapter 19 and verse 11 that Pilate did not have the greatest sin in the matter of his crucifixion. It was the Jews who had the prophecies of Scripture of 2,000 years, all of the miracles and the religious wisdom to be able to know he was the Son of God. But they had delivered him and corrupted a public official in order to crucify him. They have the greater sin. This prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ is identical to the prayer of a deacon named Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and verse 60, where Stephen, kneeling down and being stoned to death by the Jews, said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. He didn't say, Lord, lay no sins to their charge. He said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge, which shows the character of a righteous man that them killing me, this transaction of them killing me, is not worth your judgment. That is the ultimate in loving your enemies. And the Lord Jesus Christ did that. The first thing he said from the cross was to pray for forgiveness for those that were nailing him there. And so is fulfilled Isaiah 53 and verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. Isn't that wonderful? Yes. Amen. Do you want that righteousness applied to your account? Amen. I do. I fail sometimes in loving my enemies. But you know what? I want to tell you something, brethren. I'm way ahead of you in this sermon because I've got to spend maybe a 100 hours not altogether studying this, but many of those studying it, meditating upon these words. And you go to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'll tell you it's the greatest source of strength to love your enemies. There is no greater source. I can read Matthew 5 to you, and those are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you go to the cross of Christ and see him dying there for you, and him loving his enemies when they treated him so, I've never been treated like that. Why can't I love my enemies? And so it's easy because I see the cross. And that's tonight I want you to see the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And those are his first words. After he said those words, they parted his raiment and cast lots for it. And then the Jews and the rulers and the soldiers and the thieves railed on him. He hung there from 9 o'clock to 12 o'clock with the sun shining with all of these people walking by and wagging their heads and wagging their tongues and railing on him and daring him to come down from the cross. And my brethren, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world. I don't know if that gives you goosebumps or not, but it does me 
to think about the Lord Jesus Christ calling angels, they would have split this world wide open and swallowed all of those men and destroyed them all and delivered him from them and carried him into heaven. But he didn't because he had made a covenant promise to his father that he would die for you. The father gave him your name, elect before the foundation of the world, written in the Lamb's book of life, and asked him in covenant to die for you. It is that simple, it is that personal, and it's that plain in the word of God. And he was not going to be delivered from that hour. He spent his entire life knowing the hour for which he was in this earth. Let's come down to verse 39. And one of the male factors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. May Jesus Christ be praised. I don't have time this evening to turn you to the other testimonies of Scripture that tell us that both thieves railed on the Lord Jesus Christ when they first got to Calvary. When they were first nailed to the cross, the other thieves railed on Jesus Christ also. But I want you to know that our Savior, the Son of God, while hanging there on the cross, spoke the word to one of those thieves. John chapter 5 and verse 25 says that by the voice of the Son of God, we are raised to life. And He arrested the heart of a man and recreated that heart and formed it anew while He was hanging on the cross. There was no time for baptism. There was no time for good works. There was no time for anything. Death was imminent. And the Lord Jesus Christ spoke life. And life came into that man's heart. And all of a sudden, He felt guilt and defense, and defended the Lord Jesus Christ, and rebuked his companion and companion in crime. Amen. I want to tell you something else. The Bible says that no man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. That's right. Right. Jesus Christ spoke the word on that cross. It doesn't have to be audible. It's more powerful than any word that's ever been voiced. What a word is this, the Bible would say. What a word is this. Jesus Christ spoke, and the Holy Ghost came into that man's heart, and he said, Lord. And I want to tell you, if he hadn't said Lord by the Holy Ghost, Jesus wouldn't have given him the answer that he did. He said it by the Holy Ghost. We have a man on the cross that has the Holy Ghost in his heart. He recognizes the Lord of glory. He recognizes the kingdom of God. Do you know that Jesus Christ said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Did this man see the kingdom? Didn't he say, Lord, remember me when thou comest in to thy kingdom. He saw the kingdom of God. What do we know about this man because of that statement? He was born again by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ hanging there on the cross. Now, our modern translations corrupt the next verse. 
The next verse that says, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. They move that comma from in front of the word today to behind it. Verily I say unto thee today, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. And they leave that man hanging for the present time. There's a thing called soul sleep that are believed by many. Where we go into this state between now and the final resurrection, in which we're in a place where our souls sleep, there's no conscience, conscious existence. But I want to tell you that comma is exactly where it is, and we believe it by faith in the fruit of the King James Bible. Right. That comma is there to say, Verily I say unto thee, Today, which is modifying when he would be with him, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Right. Jesus didn't have to say, Verily I say unto thee today. What do you think the thief thought? That he was talking about tomorrow? Verily I say unto thee today. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Amen. And he was with him in paradise. Where is paradise, brethren? What else does the Bible say about paradise? It defines it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It calls it the third heaven. God has made three heavens. Because when he created the heavens and the earth, the earth was covered with water. And so he separated some water. He put some water up in the air and put heaven between the water above it and the water that is on the earth. And he called that firmament heaven. That's the first heaven. Birds fly in that heaven. Right. But he made another heaven in Genesis chapter 1. And that's where the sun, the moon, and the stars move. And that's the second heaven. But brethren, there's a third heaven that they haven't seen yet with their telescopes. Amen. And that heaven is where the Lord Jesus Christ is with God. And that is paradise, brethren. Right, that is paradise. Amen. And Paul went to the third heaven. And he calls it paradise in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And Jesus said to that thief, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Amen. Could you die yep. hearing those words? Yeah, amen. Thank you, sister. Could you die hearing those words? Amen. amen. I want to tell you something. All those words are written for you in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6, 6 through 8, where the Apostle Paul tells us Gentiles, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Amen. If you were to die right now from a heart attack, if a seizure were to grab your heart so that it could no longer pump blood to your brain and you were to die in the next few seconds, you would be absent from your body and you would be present with the Lord and the Lord is in the third heaven, it's called paradise, and you would be there with him today. Amen. Jesus Christ did not leave his work of regeneration and salvation even while he was hanging on the cross. Amen. And how much cooperation did he get from this thief? Amen. He was railing on him until Jesus Christ changed his heart. Isn't that glorious? Amen. Do you love the Savior that died for you? Yes. He's the sole winner that we can all trust in. Amen. He will lose none of them. Was he about to lose that thief? Oh, no. Oh, no. He saved that thief. Let's turn now to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Brethren, we know more than that thief. Amen. We know more than that thief. Jesus has died for us. He's defeated death and he's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. If you were to have a seizure right now, I know I've said it already, but I want to say it again. If you were to have one right now, one of us is going to have one any one of these days. Amen. 
To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Straight into heaven. And I'll tell you if it happens, we're going to gather around that person while we're waiting for someone to come and do unnecessary things. And we're going to hold hands and we're going to acknowledge and confess that that person is with the Lord in paradise where the rest of us wish we were. And we're going to be happy. Though we'll be sad at missing their companionship, we'll be happy that Jesus Christ has taken another one out of this place. And the more you see the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the less you want to be in this place. Come over to John chapter 19. My brethren, I did not get to tell you about the mother of Jesus as much this morning as I wanted to. But she kept all the sayings of her son in her heart, and she pondered them. And she followed him all of his life. She followed him when he was 12. She heard what the wise men said. She heard what the shepherds said. She kept those things in her heart. She wondered about him at 12 when she saw him in the temple with the doctors of the law asking questions and answering questions, and they all marveled at his wisdom. She followed him and she saw his miracles. And she saw him on the cross of Calvary because she was one of the women standing by watching her son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on that cross. And brethren, she didn't lose faith because he was laid in a tomb. She saw him resurrected. And I want to tell you that in Acts chapter 1, the foundation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ included a woman named Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was there. You can go look look at it in Acts chapter 1. But she's standing at the cross. We come to John 19, verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. That gives us the interpretation of the statement. Jesus didn't say, Mother, look at your son hanging here on the cross. Jesus was saying to Mary, This is the son that will take care of you in my place, since I'm not going to be here any longer and I'm about to die. And then he said to that beloved disciple of his, John, This is now your mother. And I want, to, I want you to understand that they understood those words. Amen. Because a transaction took place right there. Because if he hadn't done that, he would have denied the faith and been worse than an infidel. But he honored his mother. He honored his mother and provided for her after his death. Is that glorious? Amen. Do you know what? There's a commandment that says, Honor thy father and thy mother, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Jesus honored his mother. Hanging on the cross, undergoing the punishment for our sins, so much so that we're about to read his God-forsaken soul. He was still lucid enough and righteous enough in all the fear and anguish that racked his soul to think about his righteous duties before God because there was the mother that had given birth to him. That Lord Jesus Christ had said, All those that hear the word of God and keep it, they are my mother and my brethren. Once a woman had said, blessed be the paps 
that gave suck to you and the womb that bare you. And he said, oh, no, yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. But I want to tell you that though he had to sometimes correct the excesses of Marialatry, even in his own day, when he was hanging there on the cross, he saw the woman that had given birth to him and that had cared for him and changed his diapers and fed him and nourished him and brought him up. And I do him no disrespect whatsoever. If you do not understand that about him, you do not understand the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a little baby. And she took care of him. She nursed him. And she fed him. And she clothed him. And when he saw that, he returned that favor. 1 Timothy chapter 5 says that in the older eight days of our parents, we are to requite them. That means to repay them for what they have done for us. And the Lord Jesus Christ took that obligation seriously, and even hanging on the cross, he fulfilled it. What a Savior. What righteousness. Even on the cross, he assigned the duties to his beloved disciple, John. At this time, darkness comes over the earth. And we sing a song that I love so much. Well might the sun in darkness hide. And shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died. The sun was darkened for three hours from 12 o'clock until 3 o'clock. And we have no record that he said anything in those hours. Because I want to tell you how the Bible describes it. All the waves and billows of God's wrath roll over his soul. You have never had a drop of grief in your life compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says waves and billows. You saw some little waves and billows, Brother David, but you were in a boat. He was not in a boat. He was fully exposed to them, and they rolled over his soul. And God left him. The consoling, comforting, strengthening, encouraging ministry of God to him that he had known all of his life was gone. And he hung there on that cross by faith. He endured those waves and billows by faith in God. And when when we come out of those three hours of darkness, we now turn to Mark chapter 15. We have him saying those words that we're so familiar with. Romans, Mark chapter 15 and the 34th verse. And at the ninth hour, which is three o'clock in the afternoon, after three hours of darkness, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the punishment for our sins. Adam and Eve were thrown out of the Garden of Eden because of sin, because they could no longer be in the presence of God. Satan and his angels were thrown out of heaven because they could no longer be in the presence of God. Hell, though its torments of fire are great, is to be totally sent out and deserted by the presence of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 tells us that he is going to come from heaven with his angels in flaming fire, wrecking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be separated from the glory of his presence 
forever. That is the punishment for sin. And the punishment of sin was exacted upon the Lord Jesus Christ. God forsook him. He was still the Son of God. He was still Jesus Christ of Nazareth in eternal, permanent union with the Word of God. But the comforting, consoling, strengthening, encouraging relationship that he had with God was no more for these hours. The waves and the billows of God's wrath rolled over his soul. Every bit of grief and guilt that you ever felt for sin, that you should feel for sin, was multiplied an infinite number of times and rolled over his soul. You have never felt guilt like the Lord Jesus Christ because he was perfectly righteous. You don't feel guilt because you're perfectly wicked. The only guilt you feel is because you are caught in the flesh. And the only guilt you feel is a little taste of his guilt because of your new man. He didn't have an old man. It was horrible guilt to him and it rolled over his soul. The comforting presence of God was taken away from him. My friends, loneliness is a relative thing. Why do you think you've ever been lonely? You've never really had companionship. I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad. I'm just trying to, I just want to exalt what Jesus Christ did for us. We've never really had companionship. What's a marriage compared to the union of God and his son, Jesus Christ? When he was baptized, was there a proud father? How about that thundering voice? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's companionship. And that father was with him always. And that father was no longer with him. That comforting, fatherly, affectionate relationship was violated by our sins. And so he cries, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The degree of loneliness is determined by the degree of love and affection and unity that you had beforehand. And we've never had anything like that. We can't understand what Jesus Christ went through, for we've never felt such love and fellowship as he had with his father. Most men are afraid of the dark. Children know that. They're afraid of the dark, and they're afraid of the unknown. You can watch a woman going into childbirth, and because it's an unknown thing that's taken over her body, there's great fear, and the Bible tells us there is. Darkness and the unknown swallowed him up. So that he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it was because of your sins. It was because of my sins. Every time that we have chosen to satisfy a lust, instead of serving him, we cost him grief in that hour. But he paid for them all. He hung there by faith. And though he had to cry out that God had forsaken him in the way of fellowship and comfort and encouragement, by faith, faith in the hour of pain and suffering, he had infinitely which is what we ought to have a little bit of, that when things are going poorly in our lives, we will still trust the living God because with God all things are possible. 
The Bible says, if thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. Amen. He did not faint. Amen. His faith was great. And when we talk about the being saved by the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, I am telling you something right now I wish you would consider. He hung on the cross in darkness, being forsaken in a way of fellowship and comfort and encouragement of his Father, but by faith he trusted in God. Right. Thanks be to God. For his unspeakable gift. I am glad we had a champion that had a little more faith than Adam. Adam gets a little tiny temptation from a little voluptuous woman standing next to him to eat something that God had forbidden, and he goes down immediately. I want to tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. He'd been tempted all his life. There were more women that followed Jesus Christ. Listen, women like perfect men. Jesus was a perfect man, but he endured all those temptations, and by faith to God, he never gave in to one of them. Right. And on the cross, he had the greatest temptation of all, being forsaken of his father, but he still trusted in God. Amen. He believed God. Do you know what he believed? He believed what you and I are asked to believe. God is, and God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Right. And he hung there on that cross, and he did not forget that God was, and he did not forget that God was rewarder of them that diligently sought him, and he sought God, even though forsaken by God. That is faith. Amen. Can we have a little bit of it? Can we have a little bit of it? But without faith, it is impossible to please him. But I want to tell you something about the Lord Jesus Christ. He pleased God gloriously. Amen. But I get ahead of myself. John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Oh, brethren, don't you like to be looked at through the blood and work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know how much faith you have? The faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 19 right in conjunction with saying that about God forsaking him, he adds these words to it in verse 28 of John 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. And then we come to some other words. The soldiers all drank vinegar. It was a portion of a Roman soldier. It was not something bad like you think it is. In those days, it was something good. It wasn't exactly living high on the hog to have vinegar to drink, but it was part of a Roman soldier's allotment. They had it there, and they gave him some to drink, but that isn't the point. The point is how thirsty you would be after being on trial all night long, having been awake all the previous day in the most tenderest, deepest, grief-filled moments with your disciples, and then to be hanging on that cross for the last six hours. Right. Let's go to Psalm, holding your fingers there in John 19. Please turn with me to Psalm 22, just for a moment, on these words of his that he thirsted. Psalm 22, Jesus Christ is the man Christ Jesus. <clears throat> And he was thirsty. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Here is a description of the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on a cross that has been raised into the air and dropped into its hole. My heart is like wax. 
It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. He is dried up, which you would be hanging on a cross like that. And so he said, he thirsted. In Psalm 69, in verse 21, I read these words also. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Scripture was fulfilled. Jesus knew that all things were now fulfilled. God had forsaken him. The darkness had come and the darkness had gone. And he was at the end. And so he's fulfilling all of Scripture by admitting that he was thirsty. We can never forget what it would take out of a man what the Lord Jesus Christ went through as he hung there on the cross. But let's come now to the 30th verse of John 19. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Jesus said, It is finished. Notice what we read back in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, he was seeing the joy that was set before him. And he said, It is finished. What he came to do was finished. It's finished, brethren. This morning an angel appeared, uh, this morning in our sermon, I wish that an angel had appeared here, but not really. We have the word of God. An angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, your fiance Mary is with child with the Holy Ghost. She's going to have a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Amen. That was his purpose for coming into this world. And so Jesus said, it is finished. Amen. We are such a small minority that believe that. The rest of the religious world is wanting to finish it for him. But that takes away from the glory of the cross. Paul said, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross. Not in any soul-winning mechanism or machinery or efforts, but in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because it was on the cross, he said, it is finished. For any of you that are ever in an argument with an Arminian or any other that thinks that it's by the works of men, that sinners are saved, you can rely on John chapter 19 and verse 30 and stake your soul on it. Jesus said, it is finished. And if it is not finished, none of us will be saved. But it was finished. Jesus came into this world to save sinners, and he finished that work. He came down from heaven not to do his own will, but the will of him that sent him. And the Father's will that sent him was that he shouldn't lose any of those that God had given him. And Jesus didn't lose any. Amen. He said, it is finished. Right. And he meant it. Amen. Who's going to require more? Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul would argue, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Jesus finished that work. Not only were our sins paid for because he endured the separation and the wrath of God for them, but the perfect righteousness that he had lived for 33 and a half years was given to us in a divine transaction. It's finished. It's finished. Amen. And there's hardly any pulpits left in the world that say that. And brethren, I want to tell you that we would stop on that verse and not add anything to it is only by the grace of God. So many preach the words, but then they have to add to it. 
Jesus said, it is finished. He didn't make salvation possible because he wasn't sent into this world to make salvation possible. He was sent into this world to absolutely and certainly and finally save every single one of the elect that God gave him before the world began. And he said, it is finished. Who's going to require any further offerings or perfection for Jesus Christ hath perfected us forever? Hebrews chapter 10 tells us. Now, are those the last words of Jesus? No, they are not. Luke chapter 23. Excuse me, Luke chapter 23. Those are not the last words. But right there at the end, he was uttering several statements together, close together. He said it is finished, and John's record was that he gave up the ghost, which he did. But in between saying it is finished and giving up the ghost, he said something else. Luke chapter 23 and verse 46. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, that's a past perfect tense. When Jesus had cried with a loud voice saying, it is finished. He said, past tense, which means these are the last words he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. My dear fellow saints, sinners saved by grace, our Lord Jesus Christ did not die at the hands of Roman soldiers altogether. He laid down his life for us. He laid down his life. He had said earlier to his disciples in John chapter 10 and verse 18, I have power from my Father in heaven to lay my life down, and I have power to take it up again. He laid it down. To die this quickly in a crucifixion, very unusual. When Joseph and Nicodemus went to Pilate to beg the body of Jesus in just a little while after this, he marveled that Jesus would be dead already and had to call the centurion in to ask if it were true that Jesus was truly dead because crucifixion doesn't kill a man so fast. But Jesus Christ had undergone something that those thieves knew nothing about, and that was the wrath of God upon his soul, and he did something that they couldn't do. Brethren, there is within men, unless they are close to the Lord Jesus Christ, an insatiable desire for life. Jesus had an insatiable desire to work the works of God and to lay down his life for us. And he gave up the ghost. And he, listen, he was lucid. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. God forsook him in the comforting, encouraging fellowship of the relationship that he had had. I want to tell you something about the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the moment of death, having been forsaken by his father, he still called him father, and he trusted to step through the dark curtain of death, trusting in God. Is that faith? We never have to do it like that. He has said to us, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Do those words mean anything to you? Did he know what it was like to be forsaken? Do you know what he said to us? I will never leave thee, 
nor forsake thee. When we come to that dark curtain before us, he's never going to forsake us. And we're going to believe two things, my brethren, because it's coming. God is, and he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And you can step right through that curtain into the presence of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ did and embraced a thief. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And though forsaken, he trusted in God. I beg tonight that you will trust in God. But more than that, I beg. And I exhort you, my brethren, that you'll love the Lord Jesus Christ with me. When Jesus did that, things happened. An earthquake tore the rocks. The cemeteries were ripped open. The rock vaults in the sides of the hills of Judea were opened up. And when Jesus rose three days later, he wasn't the only one that rose. Matthew chapter 27 tells us that when he rose three days later, those open graves, a bunch, it says many, saints got up and walked into the city of Jerusalem. Now, is that life-giving power? Praise his holy name. The veil in the temple, which separated all the people, all the saints of God from the presence of God, was torn from top to bottom so that now we have free access into the presence of God because of Jesus Christ's new and living way. Anymore, a centurion stood there that had been assigned the responsibility of overseeing this crucifixion. The Bible tells us very plainly that he did see the earthquake and he did hear the earthquake and he had seen the darkness. But the Bible also tells us that he saw the way in which Jesus Christ died by choice and commending his spirit into the hands of his father. And he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Amen. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God tonight? Amen. Do you love him? Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.